When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. During a global health crisis in which misinformation abounds, laws that clamp down on fake news really can save lives. Problem is, those same laws are handy for governments looking for more levers of power. We look at how they're being abused. And on the Isle of Man, a British territory in the Irish Sea, crops of pot will soon be popping up. The island wants to get in on the growing medical marijuana trade, and because it's self-governed, It doesn't need a rare British government license to do so. But first... Today, Myanmar's ousted leader Aung San Suu Kyi appeared in public for the first time since she was detained a month ago in a coup by the country's military leaders. Her appearance came as people in Myanmar continue to take to the streets in protest, even after the pro-democracy movement's deadliest day yesterday. At least 18 people were killed as security forces fired live rounds into crowds across the country. There's no end in sight to the escalation. As demonstrations have grown, the junta's methods have become more brutal. Saturday, Myanmar's envoy to the United Nations, Kya Motun, made an emotional appeal asking for international assistance. We need further strongest possible action from the international community to immediately end the military coup, to stop oppressing the innocent people, to return the state power to the people, and to restore the democracy. Well, this weekend, security forces fired into crowds of mass protesters in several cities across Myanmar, among them Mandalay, which is the country's second biggest city, and Yangon, the commercial capital. They used stun grenades, tear gas, and also live bullets. The country's Catholic cardinal, Charles Mongbo, said that Myanmar is like a battlefield. Charlie McCann is The Economist's Southeast Asia correspondent. Nearly 500 protesters have been detained, according to state media. But a local NGO, the Assistance Association for Political Prisoners, reckons that that number might be well over 1,000. The trouble is it's quite difficult to document all of these arrests. So it seems like an escalation both in the scale of the protests and in the response to them. That's right. On most days, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Burmese are taking to the streets or are going on strike. Thousands of civil servants are just not going into work. So you have the machinery of state grinding to a halt and many important economic functions just not working. We're also seeing that the army's 
initially somewhat restrained response to the protests is changing. Shortly after the protests began, nearly three weeks ago, they'd begun dispersing crowds with rubber bullets, water cannon as well. But they have begun firing live rounds into crowds of protesters. By February 27th, eight people had been killed the bloodiest incident was an attack on employees of a shipyard in Mandalay who were refusing to work and protesters had gathered to help protect them from police who had come to try and force them back to their jobs. And then, of course, we have the events of, of yesterday. Protesters in recent days may have been further enraged by the fact that the junta annulled the results of the election, which returned the party of Aung San Suu Kyi to power, which took place back in November. So they annulled those election results on Friday and have dismissed the old election commission and appointed an entirely new one. And what about Ms. Suu Kyi? What do you make of her appearance for the first time in public today in court? Well, she appeared in the hearing via video link and she looked healthy she has been called in front of the court because she's being charged uh, the ludicrous crime of possessing improperly obtained walkie-talkies and staging a campaign rally during the pandemic, which the junta argues violated social distancing regulations. It appears that an additional charge is being filed against her, this time for, quote, causing fear or alarm, that is to say, making statements likely to stir up public unrest. Her lawyer says that he hasn't been able to see Suchi at all since she was taken on the first. She's being held at an unknown location. Many of her colleagues within her party, the National League of Democracy, were also arrested on the day of the coup. Those who weren't, though, are busily planning to form an interim government they hope will rival the junta. And so as the protests have, have escalated and the response to them has, has gotten more violent, what's been the international response? Well, Western countries have by and large responded with horror. The U.S. has imposed sanctions targeting the commander-in-chief of the armed forces, Min Aung Lang, also some other top generals within the army and some companies which are linked to the military. Britain and Canada have likewise condemned the coup. Asian countries have been more muted in their response. China initially described the coup as a major cabinet reshuffle. Many countries within ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, which is a grouping of Southeast Asian countries, have cleaved to the sort of typical ASEAN view that domestic politics are internal affairs and it's not right for other countries to meddle. Indonesia, the biggest country in ASEAN, has actually expressed concern and is convening a meeting tomorrow to try and chivy other ASEAN countries along with it to try and come up with a, a more constructive response to the coup. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights in Myanmar has called for a far more robust international response. He thinks that tougher sanctions should be imposed and that a global arms embargo should be placed on Myanmar. But for the moment, it, it would appear that the military has the upper hand and, and in a country that has known lots and lots of military rule before. Is this just a return to form in that way? The army is certainly in a very strong position it has guns, it has weaponry, it is used to running Myanmar. So it has that kind of institutional memory. 
But the country has changed a lot since the end of military rule 10 years ago. Um, it's experimented with a hybrid form of democracy. The country and economy have opened up to the world. So people had a taste of what democracy in Myanmar can be like. They don't want to relinquish that. They certainly do not want to return to the dark old days of military rule. And they're now connected to each other thanks to the arrival of the internet. And because of that, they can organize in a way that they just couldn't have even a decade ago. And they can also tell the world about the brutal repression that they're enduring at the hands of the military. So I think the military does have the upper hand, but even as it is responding to these protests with ever greater violence, the people aren't backing down. Charlie, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. For more than a year, the pandemic has provoked a flood of misinformation on vaccines, where the coronavirus came from, how it spread. The man who was heading the pandemic task force was involved in a cover-up. She claims that the virus was created in a government-controlled lab in Wuhan. Extraordinary claims, though false and easily debunked, have spread like wildfire. Notionally in response, many governments introduced new laws to crack down on this fake news. But around the world, the laws aren't only being used against the fake stuff, but the real kind too. Between March and October of 2020, 17 countries passed new laws against online misinformation or fake information. And those include countries like Russia, Hungary, and the Philippines. And more countries have followed suit, like Nicaragua. Madeleine Schwartz writes about international affairs for The Economist. Now, governments have always regulated speech, and disinformation, especially disinformation about a deadly pandemic, is a real problem. But these broad and vague measures are very worrying for the future of journalism. So what do these new laws look like? Well, to take one example, in March of last year, Russia passed new legislation saying that media outlets found guilty of deliberately spreading false information about matters of public safety, including the pandemic, could be fined. And because that legislation was written into the criminal code, they could also get jail time. In many cases, countries are not just writing new laws, but reviving old laws. So in March, again, the country of Jordan revived a defense law from 1992, which declared a state of emergency. And under that state of emergency, the government can monitor content from newspapers and shut down any outlet without giving a reason. And generally, the, the courts are letting these laws stand, are prosecuting you know, with these laws in mind. It's worth noting that a lot of this legislation was introduced as temporary measures, but of course, as the pandemic drags on, it becomes less and less temporary. So in Hungary, for example, a state of emergency declared 
in March of last year included punishment for what the government considered misinformation. And that state of emergency ended in June, but it was actually revived again in November of last year with the second wave. In some cases, the legal basis for these laws is also not entirely clear. So in January of this year, a Zimbabwean journalist named Hopewell Chinono was arrested for allegedly tweeting about police violence during the lockdown. But according to his lawyer, the specific law under which he was charged was actually struck down in 2014 by the Zimbabwean Constitutional Court. So how big an impact, aside from these detentions, have these laws had? Well, obviously journalists have been detained on the basis of these laws around the world. And in one case, in Egypt, one journalist actually died of COVID-19 after catching it in prison. That journalist, Mohamed Monir, had been arrested after, among other things, writing an article criticizing the government's response to the pandemic. And for that, he was charged with spreading fake news, misusing social media, and joining a terrorist group. In addition to that, though, these laws are really making it harder for journalists to do their work. So sources are less willing to talk because they're scared. And of course, this also means that some articles don't get written at all. In 2018, Bangladesh passed legislation that allows the government to go after journalists and individuals that they accuse of cyber terrorism, very broadly defined. And one Bangladeshi journalist I talked to said that the biggest impact has been self-censorship. And what about the, the stated aim of these laws in terms of clamping down on fake news? Is that at least happening? Well, the biggest irony, I would say, with this new legislation is that the politicians who are passing these laws are actually often guilty of perpetuating fake news themselves. Brazil, for example, is in the process of passing legislation against fake news. And the president of Brazil has spent much of the pandemic downplaying the dangers of COVID-19 or touting ineffective remedies. Now, he's not particularly hot on this law because he worries that it'll affect his supporters' actions online. But it points to a larger trend, which is that elected officials are a very large source of misinformation online. So is, is there a solution here? Is there a way to write laws that really does clamp down on fake news, no matter where it's from, without clamping down on, on the good stuff? Well, it should be said that these laws vary widely by, by country and, of course, by the judicial systems that are already in place in those countries. In South Africa, for example, temporary regulations put in place in March of last year stated that publishing falsehoods about the pandemic could be punishable by fines or by time in prison. But the journalists in South Africa that I talked to seemed relatively unconcerned about this legislation. They said that very few people had been arrested and those who had were people who were social media users saying nonsense online, like one guy who said that COVID tests could cause the spread of the disease. That said, legislation that may work one way in one country works another way in another country. And leaders are actively copying laws from different parts of the world. So in 2017, Germany passed a law called the Network Enforcement Law, which is meant to protect readers from fake news and hate speech by requiring social media platforms to remove certain material. Since they've passed this law, though, over a dozen other countries have essentially copied it. And those countries include places like Russia and Turkey, who have used the law for very different purposes, really as a way to censor free speech. And what's your view on the degree to which all of this will have a, a lasting impact on journalism, or are we just in the state of misinformation emergency here? Well, it's obviously changing the way that reporting is being done and how people consume news. One interesting trend that I think we've seen are 
media outlets using new channels to communicate with readers. For example, in Belarus, a number of independent news websites have migrated over to Telegram as a way of escaping government control. That said, I think it's really important to note that no matter how much governments try to control freedom of the press, readers still want to know the truth. In Hungary, for example, I spoke with the editor of Atlatso, which is an independent news site, who said that their readership had actually grown astronomically over the course of the pandemic. He attributed that to the fact that readers were looking for news that was not essentially government propaganda. So slightly heartening evidence that in the long run, the truth will out. Or that at the very least, no legislation can stop readers from looking for the true version of events. Madeline, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. Britain is illegal, except under limited circumstances. But the Isle of Man and Jersey, two islands that are part of Britain, are looking at the budding industry as their next big venture. And they don't need approval from the mainland to get growing. The Isle of Man used to be very popular with Victorians for holidays. Hundreds of thousands of factory workers would go there every summer, escaping the cotton mills for ice cream and donkey rides. Tom Rowley is a Britain correspondent at The Economist. But the island has changed course many times over the years, and uh, its latest wheeze is growing cannabis. Why is it that the, the Isle of Man wants to get into the cannabis industry? After tourism revenue dried up, the Isle has invented itself multiple times over the years. Its first wheeze was becoming a, an offshore financial hub. And most recently, it's also seen an awful lot of online gaming firms establishing themselves there. So that finance now accounts for very roughly a third of GDP, and e-gaming is 17%. But tourism these days makes up less than 1% of the island's income. So the hope is now that cannabis cultivation is the answer uh, to, to boost the island's coffers. And they don't need to ask permission from legislators on the mainland. Wait, why is that? Well, um, this might seem slightly complicated, even even to British people, but certainly to, <laughs> to non-UK uh, audience, so uh, bear with me. But um, the island is what's called a crown dependency, um, which means that though it's part of the British Isles, it is not British. The Queen is head of state, but Westminster doesn't pass its laws. Um, it has its own parliament on the island called Tingwold. And last month, Tingwold approved this plan to grow and export cannabis for medical use. So why this sudden interest, at least among the islands, in cannabis in particular? Well, there's money to be made. Until relatively recently, the legal cultivation of cannabis was unheard of, particularly outside of America. But it's jumped by almost 300-fold since 2000, according to the International Monitoring Agency. And in concert with that, medical regulations on its use are being relaxed across Europe. So in 2018, Britain as well uh, permitted limited prescription uh, of cannabis for medical use by registered specialists. And one research firm even reckons that the British market for medical cannabis will grow from 
just under 10 million last year to as much as almost 300 million in the next five years. So viewed from London, this might not be the the actions of a a wayward province, but of a potential competitor. Exactly, yes. Um, Britain itself is already a a big player in the global market. It actually exports more medical cannabis than, than anywhere else, which is thanks to a company called GW Pharmaceuticals, which makes drugs for multiple sclerosis and epilepsy. But new players in the market grumble that the Home Office, which is responsible for handing out permits in Britain, is very risk-averse. In fact, one lawyer I I spoke to who advises cannabis firms said that their starting point is effectively to treat anyone making an application as a criminal. Um, So even though uh, they've been handing out these licences for sort of 20 years or so now, it is still only GW and its suppliers that are permitted to grow cannabis in Britain itself. So that is to say that the Isle of Man and, and Jersey might be able to nimbly outmaneuver the mainland? Yeah, it's certainly what they say. Um, this is going to be run in the Isle of Man by the Gambling Commission, which is used to registering gaming companies and allowing them to flourish. And therefore, I think the idea is that they'll be a bit more nimble and responsive to what these uh, cannabis firms want. It's also true that the the 0% rate of corporation tax on both the the Isle of Man and Jersey compared with 19% on the mainland probably won't hurt. Tom, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks a lot, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review, and see you back here tomorrow. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.